0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. From- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 28th. Today, Reddit versus Wall Street. Plus, how Biden is using the pandemic to expand healthcare access.
1: A company that was long believed to be a relic from an older era is now having an astounding run on Wall Street and just this week has risen more than 400%. With a group of enthusiastic stock traders piling in and several large hedge funds on Wall Street losing billions of dollars.
0: That's Hamza Shaban, a business reporter for The Post, and he has been reporting on GameStop.
1: I got you something.
2: What
1: is it? Buy two pre-owned video games, get the third one free. Thanksgiving weekend at GameStop. Joy to the players. I remember GameStop, you'd go there on Black Friday or the night of a huge game release and you'd wait there in line.
0: So let's see, we've got PlayStation
1: and Xbox. (laughs) And nowadays, the, the world is completely transformed. There's really no need to go to the store if you're able to download games, so... The business model has completely transformed with this new digital mobile market. You can trace uh, the interest in the stock to last year. So an activist investor disclosed that he had taken a, a large position in the stock and his business background was from Chewy, the online pet supply store. And he came in with this record of e-commerce success. And when he started getting involved, that triggered a lot of interest from other investors who said, okay, here's this expert who can take this company that a lot of people see as outdated. He can make them this digital powerhouse or at least help them do so. So that started uh, a lot of interest in, okay, maybe this company has another life.
0: But then there are also people who have been betting that this company was going to fail.
1: That's right. So last year, GameStop was one of the most heavily targeted companies by what are called short sellers. So investors who bet against a company and they make money when a stock price falls. So,
0: Which to me is just a very confusing concept that usually you invest in something thinking that that company is going to get better, but that this is like a thing in the financial world that you can actually like bet money on something failing. And then if you're right, you actually make a ton of money that way.
1: Sure. And people see short sellers as a healthy part of the system. They're skeptics and they say, you know, the company is overvalued right now and they're not worth as much as other people think they are. And they can make money that way. But on the flip side, they can also lose money if they turn out to be wrong, which is exactly what happened with GameStop.
0: And so how did that all transpire? Like, how did people start glomming onto this idea that actually GameStop is the company that you should be investing in right now?
1: So a a lot of the interest came from a Reddit forum. Called Wall Street bets, and there are other online trading communities where people are sharing ideas, and they they on these on these communities they would argue the optimistic case for gamestop and part of garnering that interest was also saying, Hey, look.' this stock is also targeted by short sellers. And if we're right, they stand to lose a lot of money and that can actually trigger even higher prices for us. So we stand to enrich ourselves and kind of prove the big guys at Wall Street of how wrong they are.
0: So it seems like there were two attitudes that were fueling this really aggressive investment in GameStop. First, it was like, you know, we think that this is a company that could actually do better under new leadership and that it's going places that are good. But then also this sense of people just being like, we want to get back at these hedge funds and these like incredibly wealthy investors. And this is a way that we can make them pay a lot of money and bring them down and like us as the little guy can actually win over these huge hedge funds.
1: For sure. Is so so much of the interest is driven by this kind of righteous feeling of having the little people have their day. And the the people of Wall Street have for too long exploited the financial system and used it as their, their kind of casino. So it was, it was a, a lot of factors, but that was one of them. This case of, you know, GameStop can actually turn their business around. And then there was this also kind of ideological push of this can be a victory for the little person.
0: So how did that transpire in terms of the stock prices of GameStop, like how it's gone up and down over the past week?
1: It's been this cascading effect. So just this week, the stock price has risen over 400 percent, which is astounding. In a single day, the stock has doubled. And and what happens in those cases when there's so much volatility the exchanges will actually pause trading to kind of temper the volatility, which speaks to the the drama that has been taking place this week.
0: And then for the, the investors who originally had shorted the stock or bet that, that GameStop was going to fail, what happens to them? Like how much money have they lost from this?
1: We don't know the exact amount but we do know that one short seller had to take an outside investment of almost 3 billion dollars so that speaks to the the huge money uh that's in play and 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 then you also hear about how much money the people on who have been optimistic about GameStop you also hear about how much money they're making people have posted on Reddit that they've made millions of dollars off of these trades
0: oh my gosh that's absurd So where does the stock go from here? I mean, is this a reflection of the idea that GameStop is actually going to become this, like, powerhouse company? Or is this just a big bubble that is about to burst?
1: So some experts say that this is a, a a gigantic kind of pyramid scheme and the people buying now are buying with the expectation that a week from now or a month from now, someone else will buy it from them from an even higher price, but that that model will collapse once people realize that, you know, I don't want to be the next person who's going to lose money. Another factor is... People who have big stakes in GameStop can choose to sell, and that may cause the price to fall and then we will kind of reverse this cascade.
0: The other part of what is so remarkable about this story is that this has gotten enough attention that this is now an issue for, like, the Federal Reserve and for the White House. What have they said about this, like, weird, bizarre story that has now come out of, like, A corner of the Internet.
1: The prices have risen so fast and so quickly, and there's just so much attention being drawn to this that yesterday uh, the Biden administration had to say that Treasury officials are looking into this.
0: But our team is, of course, our economic team, including Secretary Yellen and others are monitoring uh, the situation. It's a good reminder, though, that the stock market isn't the only measure of the health of our our economy.
1: The SEC said yesterday that they're monitoring the situation. So this is really uh, amazing and, and few people have seen anything like this.
0: And is this a sign that there is something wrong with how the stock market works, that there is like some need to regulate these kinds of investments in a better way? Or is this just like some people on Reddit capitalizing on this moment and that this isn't something wrong? It's just, you know, the nature of the stock market working out in a funny, surprising way.
1: I think you'd hear both from the Redditors who are enthusiastic and passionate about GameStop. They'd say, we've made our case, we've argued our points, and we're winning the bet, and you've lost. Other people are concerned about everyday investors making really tremendously risky bets, and they're concerned that there should be regulators looking out for these people and uh, trying to prevent malicious behavior and people trying to uh, manipulate uh, prices. Then you have another strain of thought this ideology of, you know, these big players in Wall Street have for so long taken so much money from so many people. And when they do it, it's fine. It's, it's part of the stock market. But when the little person does it, oh, no, now it's manipulation and now regulators need to, to step in. There's a lot of pointing out of that hypocrisy and this feeling of unfairness.
0: And that this has led to so much discussion about the democratization of stocks, right? That for a lot of average Americans, like they don't actually interact with the stock market on any like daily basis. They probably don't have stocks. But that, in fact, like it's very interesting to see a world where regular people can use the stock market to their advantage.
1: There's a lot of connections here with with social media and this idea of of collective action, collective information, and that... So much of of the stock market and finance and economics, it's puzzling to people, and it's confusing. Um But this is one episode that that seems as though it's kind of demystifying the mystique, and that it's not only experts and super wealthy people who can who can stand to gain, but but anybody can
0: Hamza Shaban is a reporter on the business desk. On Thursday morning, the stock trading and investment app Robinhood took action to stop people from buying GameStop shares. They also restricted transactions on other companies that have been targeted by Redditors like AMC and BlackBerry. Robinhood is now facing a class action lawsuit for these moves.
2: President Biden has said since his campaign that expanding health insurance in this country is a really important goal for him. And he just basically today made a down payment on that goal. But today I'm about to sign two executive orders are basically the best way to describe them to undo the damage Trump has done. What he did is take two executive actions one involving the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid, and the other, a series of steps that basically affect women's reproductive rights. There's nothing new that we're doing here other than restoring the Affordable Care Act and restoring the Medicaid to the way it was before Trump became president, which by fiat- I'm Amy Goldstein, and I'm the Washington Post national healthcare policy writer. What he's done with respect to health care is first directed the Department of Health and Human Services to reopen healthcare.gov, which is the online Affordable Care Act marketplace selling health insurance to people who don't have coverage through a job. He's also taking some steps with respect to Medicaid to try to make it a little bit easier for people to get into the program, essentially by undoing some rules that the Trump administration wrote that had the effect of creating some barriers to this kind of safety net insurance. of all times that we need to reinstate access to, affordability of, and extent of access to Medicaid is now in the middle of this COVID crisis.
0: And what is the rationale that he's using for why he wants to reopen the healthcare marketplace for a longer window and to kind of lower some of these barriers for people to get Medicaid?
2: Well, the federal marketplace, which three dozen states rely on for ACA health plans, is going to be open from February 15th to May 15th. Ordinarily, it's just open for six weeks towards the end of every year. But what the president is saying is that there have been so many people who have lost insurance as kind of a ripple effect of the coronavirus pandemic that he really wants to do everything he can to give people a shot at gaining coverage. And what do we know about
0: how many people
2: in the U.S. don't
0: have health insurance right now and how that number has changed because of the pandemic?
2: Well, the gold standard for knowing who has and who doesn't have health insurance is the U.S. Census. And they report every fall what was happening the previous year. So this past September, we learned that in 2019, there were about 30 million people at the time when they were surveyed by the census who did not have insurance. Now that is a figure obviously that predates the pandemic. And it's interesting because that figure had been getting worse for three years in a row, even before the pandemic began. Now you add on to that what's been happening since the pandemic is millions of people have lost jobs and lost the health benefits that came with the jobs that they lost. Nobody really, really knows how many people that is. The latest good estimates that I've seen came from a group called the Kaiser Family Foundation which said in December that they thought the number might be something like two or three million people had lost health benefits in the pandemic, which is actually a little lower than we thought earlier in the year. And the speculation is that maybe some of the people who lost jobs in the pandemic lost jobs that hadn't given them insurance in the first place, Hmm. or some people have been able to join Medicaid if they became poor enough to get into that program. But in any case, no matter how you counted it or how much lack of precision there is in knowing exactly how many people are uninsured because of the pandemic, it's been millions of people and this really matters now.
0: What I find really interesting about this is that the Biden administration is using the pandemic and the fact that so many people have lost their jobs as a reason to take this executive action and to widen access for some people to get health care right now. But also this is part of their larger plan than even preceded the pandemic of wanting to give more people in this country access to health care and get more people insured. And, and so in some ways, it feels like the pandemic is helping enable larger goals for the Biden administration when it comes to health care.
2: I think you're right in two different ways. If you think about what Democrats generally care about, they really care about expanding access to healthcare and access to health insurance. If you think about the line that people may have heard, healthcare should be a right and not a privilege. That's been a big democratic talking point among Democrats, you know, at the very far end of the progressive part of the spectrum, or people who are more moderate like President Biden. The other way that what you're saying is true is that President Biden has all along uh, said he thinks that insurance should be expanded by using existing programs, not mm. by creating something like a single payer healthcare system, uh, something that Senator Bernie Sanders advocated when he was running for president. So, if you think about what's happening in these executive actions, they rely on the Affordable Care Act, which is a big decade-old care law. And they rely on Medicaid. So those are the existing programs that the government has, which is exactly what Biden's been saying he's going to do.
0: And it seems like what makes this at least convenient for now is that this is something that he can do by executive action rather than having to pass a law or get Congress to approve something. To what extent can Biden achieve his goals on health care through similar executive actions and doing things somewhat unilaterally versus what he has to do
2: with Congress? Well, not to say that these steps that he's now taking don't matter. But he's really going to need Congress to go along to do a lot of what he said he wants to do. Just to give a couple of examples, if you recall, he said during the campaign that he wants to create a public insurance option, kind of government insurance, as a companion to the private health plans that are sold through Affordable Care Act marketplaces. So people could have a choice when they're buying an ACA health plan, whether to do a private sector one or the government insurance. That is something that uh, the White House can't do without Congress's consent. He also has said that he wants to expand federal subsidies for people who qualify for ACA health plans. Under the Affordable Care Act, there was for the first time a set of federal subsidies to help most people who are buying ACA health plans afford their insurance premiums, their monthly premiums for their coverage. Now that goes up to 400% of the poverty level. What Biden has said since the campaign is he thinks that should be higher so that more middle-class people can better afford to buy these ACA health plans. That can't happen without Congress. Let me just mention one more thing. There are about a dozen states that still have not expanded their Medicaid programs under this decade-old law. And that's something that unless Congress goes along, the federal government can't decree. But what Biden has said he'd like to do, if states still decide not to expand, is he'd like to find a way to help people who would otherwise qualify for Medicaid to be able to afford to buy, uh, without paying premiums, ACA health plans. And that's another thing that Congress would have to agree to do. So those are much broader goals that can't be done through executive action. But as you suggested, he's starting by doing what he can.
0: In some ways, the goals and proposals that you're outlining here from the Biden administration are are a direct reversal, essentially, of what the Trump administration was trying to do and the efforts in the court system that the Trump administration has taken to try to dismantle parts of the Affordable Care Act. Is there still a risk to the ACA in some ways being dismantled, even as President Biden is trying to make it more expansive?
2: Well, let me answer that in a couple of different ways. First of all, there is a very fundamental difference between the Trump administration that was trying to weaken, or if they could, get rid of this law, versus the brand new Biden administration that is embracing the law as a tool to help more people get access to health care. I mean, that is just a basic philosophical divide. And there are specific things that, for instance, uh, the Trump administration did to cut out a lot of money that federal health officials have been spending the first couple years of the law to do outreach, advertising, to have people who are called navigators, who are basically assisters for people who don't quite know how to sign up for this coverage. The Trump administration way reduced the amount of federal money available for all of that stuff, basically contending that it didn't really work. It was just wasteful. And people, by the time they cut that money, already knew how to find their way to an ACA health plan if they wanted one. The Biden administration is going to put money back into outreach and advertising. They didn't say today how much it's going to be. But it's clear that their view is that if they want people to sign up for coverage under this new window of opportunity that they're going to be providing, they have to know about this opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that's a direct reversal. On the legal front that you asked about, the court front, well, there's still a big threat hanging over this whole law. And the reason is that, as you may recall, there's a lawsuit that's now before the Supreme Court that's trying to have um, the entire law declared unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. That's a lawsuit that was filed uh, just about three years ago now by a group of Republican attorneys general around the country. And the Trump administration actually joined this lawsuit saying, yeah, we want to fight with you to try to get rid of this law. The Supreme Court in the fall had um, oral arguments. And some of the justices didn't sound that hospitable to getting rid of the whole law, but it's going to be many months before they actually rule. And until that ruling happens, we don't know whether that law is going to continue to exist or not.
0: I also wonder if the landscape has changed in terms of how this country thinks about healthcare. that because of the pandemic, because so many people's lives have been affected by getting sick or losing their job and being worried about what happens if they don't have healthcare if they do get sick, if that has shifted the public sentiment and attitudes toward the Affordable Care Act?
2: Well, if you look at the polling that's been done ever since the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, it's always been a very politically divisive law. And sentiment has shifted a little bit over time. You know, for a while it was about 50 percent, then it was just under 50 percent of the American public said they thought the law was a good idea. Now it's been back up over 50 percent. But these are gradations. They're small margins. So the law itself continues to be all tied up in the political divide in this country. But if you're asking more broadly about public attitudes towards the importance of health care, well, there's no more vivid dramatization that you could have about the importance of health care than a pandemic that has killed so many people in this country. It's a really vivid illustration of why having access to health care matters. And as the Biden administration likes to point out, it's also a vivid illustration of the problems of this country with inequities in access to healthcare. Because if you look at who suffered the most in the pandemic, it's been Black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, low-income Americans, people in low-paid jobs, people in poor neighborhoods. Those people have gotten sicker and died at much higher rates than other people. And those are also people who tend to have health insurance at far lower rates than middle class and upper class people in this country. So it's pointed out both the need for health care as well as the disparities that we have in getting people able to get health care.
0: Amy Goldstein covers health care policy for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This weekend is the last chance for you as a listener to this podcast to get a special rate on a Washington Post digital subscription, a total of $59 for two years of access to everything that the Post publishes. I've heard from so many people already who've said that it feels really good to be able to support this podcast and to support the journalism that adds meaning to their lives. To the people who've already signed up, thank you so very, very much. And to those who haven't yet become subscribers, this is your chance. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. And thank you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.